Hello and welcome to Med Mother Matriarch with me, Louise Perry. My guest today is Erica Bakayoki. She is an American legal scholar and the director of the Wollstonecraft Project at the Abigail Adams Institute and also a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Centre. We spoke about her latest book, The Rights of Women, which is about Mary Wollstonecraft and her legacy and all the many things that um, people tend to get wrong in interpreting Wollstonecraft's work. And the extended section, we also talked about how Erica went from being a socialist feminist to a Catholic mother of seven. As always, you can find that extended version of the podcast at my substack, louiseperry.substack.com. And you can also find bonus episodes and the MMM chat community. Enjoy. So Erica, I went today to, I was at the British Library um, already in London and um, rereading your book on Wollstonecraft and it, I suddenly remembered that she's, she's not actually buried there but there's her original grave and her memorial is about a three minute walk from the British Library in the um, Old St Pancras churchyard which I'd never been to before so I thought I'll go in the rain and it will be very atmospheric which it was. Um, found the grave which took ages and people leave things on the grave I don't know if you've been Um, and on top it's a sort of um, plinth and on top people um, leave had left pens which kind of makes sense there was a little statue of an angel and some lace and some tampons Mm. And yeah, I wasn't so sure about that one. And um, the thing that really struck out to me, and I wanted to tell you about, was a was a was a pro-abortion badge. Mm. And I thought Erica will have something to say about this because <laughs> that's because <laughs> that's a really fundamental aspect, actually, which I don't think many people know about pre-second wave feminism, the relationship to abortion. Do you want to do you want to start from there? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's an interesting um, in how I sort of came back to reading Mary Wollstonecraft. I had read her as a women's studies student at Middlebury College in the 1990s, a long, long time ago, um, and then had my own kind of intellectual, I guess, conversion, you might say, and started studying the ancients, Aristotle, Plato, and um, and really kind of got deeply into political theory and then became a lawyer. Uh, you know, I'm sort of work in my scholarship, the intersection of constitutional law, political legal theory, and feminism. And so I came back to Wollstonecraft about eight years ago. Um, and uh, and the reason I did so was because I was, I'd been working um, on kind of questions uh, that have been really animated constitutional law and the work I do in equal protection, equal protection clause of the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, have really animated, um, you know, the kind of reading of um, that text for the last 40, 50 years. Um, and that is kind of questions of abortion and questions of whether abortion rights are necessary to women's equality. Um, and I had written a lot about this and um, I had, in fact, written kind of a debunking of the kind of central claim that abortion rights are necessary to women's equality um, by, you know, trying to show how, um, you know, when we sort of put um, abortion, this this capacity to end the life of one's own child at sort of the center, which it really did become second wave feminism um, of women's kind of claims for equality, claims for freedom. There's a way in which because of reproductive asymmetry, because of, um, the fact that men and women engage in the same sexual act, but it is women who um, can bear children, uh, become pregnant and bear children, um, that we're really kind of taking a male standard of equality, you know, the ability to walk away from that sexual act. Um, because obviously women have to engage in this kind of violence against their own child in order to attain the kind of autonomy, that um, that equal autonomy that is sort of hailed in second wave and beyond feminism. So I'd really looked at these, these um, claims for, for um, equal protection, which became sort of the prevailing way to think about um, abortion rights in the United States. And I wanted to 
get behind these claims to understand their rights claims better. So someone like Ruth Bader Ginsburg's rights claims. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, of course, is sort of the the iconic second wave, um, you know, feminist thinker because she really is um, rightly hailed, I think, as as um, as having the court convincing, really, a unanimous court in the 1970s to um, see the Equal Protection Clause as applying to women as well, that they shouldn't be arbitrarily discriminated because they have capacity for, you know, becoming mothers. And and so I wanted to get behind her rights claims because I thought, how is it that a woman who sees that so clearly would understand this, that, that there's a central right to end the life of one's child? Um, and so I went back, you know, and I had already known um, our first wave women's rights advocates in our country and the way in which they were really opposed to abortion, um, morally, especially, um, they really saw, I mean, we knew scientifically in terms of biology that that abortion ended the life of a, of a child. And, and so they, they understood their rights as being necessary to carry out their duties, the duties they had to their children. So I was like, where did this all come from? And how did, what's the change and sort of rights theory basically. And so what I came to see is those earliest women's rights advocates who again grounded those claims in, I mean, if you go back and look at their, the document at Seneca Falls, the Declaration of Sentiments and Resolutions, they're really calling upon, you know, their sort of equal claim as being creatures of, you know, a creator, um, right? That they have this equal dignity because they're creatures equal in that way. Um, to men and that they have these responsibilities in society and to their families. And so they ought to have these political and civil rights, of course, we can talk more about. And so where do these come from? And so what I came to see was that they had been all been reading Mary Wollstonecraft, <laughs> um, Lucretia Mott, co-author of that, um, that declaration, as well as Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Um, but then others like Sarah Grimke, who is a kind of a really big, important thinker, um, in the mid 19th century who wrote an important um, text called the letters on the equality of the sexes so i wanted to go back and read mary wollstonecraft and so when i did i was sort of dumbfounded by what i had what i discovered there um, and i really wanted to read everything that she wrote once i went back and read a vindication of the rights of women because i hadn't remembered her um, the way i read her and i think we can talk a lot about this but i think a lot of that um, is how she's presented and how she's remembered. And I think there's a way in which Louise that, I've been thinking a lot about this lately, that she sort of stands for how, um, the sort of interpretations of her almost give a window into um, how we think, how sort of women have um, entered into the academy, have entered into the intellectual life. Um, and I and I and I think so. She's remembered depending on sort of people's priors in some sense or how they regard her a lot. Anyway, we can get into that. But I think she's you know widely regarded um, for until probably the last thirty years as kind of a Enlightenment rationalist. She's kind of thinks just like the men around her, um, an anti-religious romantic, an egalitarian. You know, she thought for women's rights she must be an egalitarian, um, even an you know, uh, sort of sharing the the views of her, you know, short-lived husband, William Godwin, um, in terms terms of anarchy, in terms of being anti-marriage or supporting free love or something. And these are all, I mean, you just have to go to the text and read her and discover that none of this is true. So, um, yes, so she uh, is also very clear. I mean, she doesn't speak a lot about abortion. She does, in one of her um, texts, The wrong of, Wrongs of Women, show how women, you know, um, had abortions out of desperation, but she does talk about how there are certain maternal duties that women have when they engage in sex, and that sex is ordered to both procreation and and um, and sort of you know coming together. She talks about sort of there's this animal nature of sex, but then there's something there's this parental um, purpose of sex, and that when we don't sort of look at those twin purposes that we um, use sex in an animalistic way. And that when we do that in terms of kind of putting lust and passion ahead of principle, that women are kind of left alone with the consequences. Um, and so she says actually that the best thing to deal with sort of this problem with both morals and population, as she said, is for men to um, maintain both mother and child. She says that very clearly and that that would, that would really help. And so 
there it is. I mean, what I regard to be sort of the way out of this puzzle is really engaged fatherhood, um, which those early women's rights advocates very much followed Wollstonecraft on. And I think is we're coming back to seeing how important that is today. It's probably worth um, talking a little bit about Wollstonecraft's biography, even though, of course, her biography has, in a sense, been often been abused or misused in terms of falsely representing um, her ideologically. Um, but do you want to explain a little bit about it? Because I think it is important, particularly in terms of her thoughts on motherhood and fatherhood. It is true, so that she really was remembered right away for just her sort of tragic personal life. And that's because her, again, short-lived husband, William Godwin, published a biography soon after she died. And um, I think really misunderstood her in a lot of ways. Obviously, they had an, an important intimacy. They bore a child together, um, the famous Mary Shelley author of Frankenstein. Um, but I think there was a lot that he misunderstood. He certainly uh, did not appreciate her rights of woman, the vindication of the rights of woman. Um, he uh, actually told her that when he first met her. Um, and he certainly didn't under, he was a sort of committed atheist. He certainly didn't understand her religiosity. So there's a lot in that biography that just was made her deeply misunderstood. And so then she wasn't read. And so then that she was sort of lionized for those very reasons <laughs> that William Godwin sort of presented her um, as this kind of figure of free love. And again, she wasn't read. So what is her biography? Well, it starts kind of tragically. Um, she was the oldest daughter of um, a family and she's a you know English woman. Um, and um, she had an alcoholic father um, who she uh, sometimes, I don't know how many occasions this would happen, but would hear raping her mother. Um, she, uh, her, she ended up having to um, really be the caretaker of her younger siblings. And so she really needed kind of an independence, like a financial independence very early on. Um, she had a dear friend, uh, Fanny, who um, died in childbirth. She had another friend, or sorry, her sister um, got into a very abusive relationship, had a child, um, and then had to leave the marriage for her own safety. And because of the marital laws that existed, her father, the father of the child um, had retained custody of the child, and then the child ended up dying. Um, so there's just a lot of deep tragedy early in her life. She goes on to become a schoolmistress. She founds a school in Newington Green. Um, with, uh, I think, two of her sisters. Um, and there she writes her first book, um, The Education of Her Daughters, which um, really, uh, I think, importantly, a lot of these early texts of hers aren't um, read, that book, um, her fiction, original stories, um, her uh, book, The Female Reader, which is a brings together Shakespeare and um, Milton and um, excerpts from the Bible in order to sort of edify um, young women in particular. Um, she talks about in that uh, thoughts of on the education of daughters. Um, she has this key line that I think is sort of opens up all of her work to help understand her. She says the main business of our lives is to learn to be virtuous. And so in all of those texts, she's really trying to help young girls and women um, stop being so concerned about their outward appearance and sort of um, uh, becoming sort of ingratiating themselves to men through beauty. And she really wants them to become strong of mind and virtuous. Um, she then in the, in the Vindication of the Rights of Women will take on Rousseau's theory, which is what we can get to. But after she founds the school, she um, comes into, um, she, she becomes a congregant. She's Anglican by religious practice, but becomes a congregant as well um, of the Reverend Richard Price, who she, uh, who is a moralist, um, kind of a follower and a, um, very much, I talk about in my book, um, in a conversant with American revolutionaries. <laughs> um, and uh, when the French Revolution rolls around, um, there's sort of this hope among these um, people like Price, who, you know, sees the American Revolution, he says, as um, next to, you know, Christianity, the, the greatest hope for mankind, basically, and that there's this, um, that they see in the American Revolution, the twin sort of goals of freedom and virtue together, just the sort of deep, sort of small r Republican view that, that Wollstonecraft also shared. Um, and uh, so when the French Revolution comes around, there's this hope um, that, you know, here too will be a place where instead of, um, you know, this, 
this focus of the aristocracy and the, and the monarchy on property and honors and kind of um, what they saw as not being, even though there was um, uh, the the appearances or the illusions of of um, of you know acquiring virtue that really that the the deep inequality and the deep corruption of um, focusing so much on property and honors had kept even those who had those um, honors from really attaining virtue and that the that the poor were sort of just imitating the rich and again not acquiring true virtue so so um, she then engages in this big sort of um, dispute with Edmund Burke, <laughs> who had was um, had critic has has was was seeking to um, uh, defend the monarchy against those early French revolutionaries. And so, part of what she's doing there is because Edmund Burke had critiqued her teacher Richard Price. And so it's that that piece of hers, vindication of the rights of men, is a is a very angry piece. There's a lot of kind of ad hominem attack. But she's going up against Burke with sort of, um, I would say, natural law principles. She's saying to him, how can you just like things that are old? How do you argue against slavery? Why aren't you just a Catholic? <laughs> um, how do you critique any of these things? So, um, and, and for that reason, I think because Burke is so hailed as this kind of conservative giant of tradition, she's seen as this adherent of the French Revolution. And that's not quite right because she then goes to Paris um, as a reporter and she sees the reign of terror in front of her eyes and she cries as the king is you know brought to the guillotine and she um sees the wrong that's happened um by by um this sort of abstraction um of, of liberty instead of understanding kind of the moral duties that she sees is to be so necessary for um natural rights can i just ask for a moment that so mm. were people not amazed at this still young what still in her 20s or maybe early 30s 30s woman yeah. who's okay school mistress um writing against Burke was that was that in, in it was that in itself kind of scandalous yeah no that's right it's first anonymous and what's kind of amazing about it and it's the part that I that sort of aggravates me about it because she was so sort of taken up in passion about him insulting a man who was very highly regarded, Richard Price, for his real sanctity. Um, uh, Abigail Adams wrote that he has a charity. Abigail Adams and John Adams were congregants in his parish in Newington Green and, and said his charity was just kind of um, overpouring for all of mankind, says Abigail. So he had this great reputation. And so the fact that he was um, critiqued by Burke, she's very animated by it. And so um, yes, very much. There's, uh, it's, it's anonymous. She then, but, but what happens is she writes a page and she sends it to the printer. She writes a page and she sends it to the printer. So there's like no editing process at all. And so it really is um, a very sort of passionate display, but it also um, is, you know, was one of the most widely read. It's certainly the first critique of Burke, but then it's one of the most widely read, at, at least in the United States. Um, Thomas Paine is um, is you know also widely read, but it's fascinating that in the United States, especially among those early women's rights advocates, it was Wollstonecraft they were reading and not Paine, because Paine takes much more of a pro-French Revolution approach. Whereas in my reading, and I think a lot of scholars reading, Wollstonecraft has much more of an American flavor because of always because there's not sort of this abstraction around rights or liberty. It's always always um, safeguarded and. Um, uh, by these prior duties, that really what we are as human beings, as rational creatures, are those who have duties to others, duties to God, duties to our children and our spouse and and our fellow creatures, as she would say, and that that's why we need these rights. Um, and so there's not just sort of natural rights to go and do whatever you will, um, which was the danger of the French Revolution. So people at this stage didn't know that the anonymous writer of this critique was female. Mm -hmm. That's right. Like that, right? That Virginia Woolf line, right? About anonymous has historically been a woman. Um, <laughs> okay, so 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 she has that. She has that text. How how much longer is it until she she sits down to write um, vindication of the rights of women? It's very soon after, um, and she's really building on a lot of those themes. But I think she's especially interested in the way in which Burke. Um, and then Rousseau, two very, very think different thinkers at that time, really have a um, strongly gendered account of virtue. So in some sense, they're all interested in 
um, the importance of the family and the inculcation of virtue for the public good. And certainly Rousseau and Burke have very, very different ideas of what that public good looks like. Um, but she too wanted to sort of enter this conversation and very much agreed that, um, that this inculcation of virtue was important to um, carrying on and sort of um, having um, public actors be virtuous. And so she wanted to um, kind of get into why it was, as she says, that she throws down her gauntlet um, against this idea of sexed virtues. And I think it's a, this is a really, really important um, aspect of her thought, and perhaps the most important, is because she understands virtue as, as she says, I build my morality on the perfection of God. She understands there's one source of virtue, and that is the goodness of God. And because God is um, all good and all wise, um, that when human beings imitate God as rational creatures, as those who um, who have been given reason as kind of a light in order to obviously know um, all things, but certainly in terms of conscience, right from wrong, and those times, types of things, um, that, uh, that, that there can't be a way in which virtue is sex, that there are these masculine and feminine virtues. And I want to get to, she certainly doesn't think men and women are the same. And she gives um, quite an account of their, um, of their difference and the way in which um, male and female characters and, and virtuously carrying out their very distinctive duties, especially due to what we would now call reproductive asymmetry, just the distinctive reproductive contributions um, and roles, that their characters may look very, very different as they carry out those virtues, right? And so she talks about a masculine, or sorry, excuse me, a maternal and a paternal character. And I, um, I think that that's sort of a distinctive way, right? And so women are not just... <laughs> called to sort of be modest and chaste, which is how feminine virtue was understood, especially by Rousseau. Um, for those who don't remember their Rousseau in the Emile, he sort of sets up um, Sophie as his female character. And, and in A Vindication of the Rights of Women, this is exactly what, I mean, he's, uh, the Emile and, and Sophie is her chief kind of interlocutor. She says at some point, I want a, a diametrically opposed education for girls that the one Rousseau has set up. Why? Because he sees men as strong and women as weak and women um, are meant to by their kind of beauty and feminine wiles and their cunning to manipulate men to do what they wish. And so they ought not only be chaste, they should have a reputation for chastity. Um, and that um, that was how they were sort of going to rule over men because of men's sort of um, stronger passions. So she doesn't disagree that men have stronger sort of sexual passions, but she thinks that a power play, even if one exists between men and women, is not good for a relationship between them and sort of the health of their marriage, but then also how they would implicate virtue in their children. She says, I want, you know, women to have power over themselves and I want men to have power over themselves through self-mastery, through this acquisition of virtue, so that then they can treat one another with a great deal of respect. Um, um, and then they can build um uh, she says, um, you know, love the other on account of their virtues. So build a friendship um, based on um, on uh, this um, sort of uh, working toward for both of them for virtue. So a kind of she sees a complementarity, but derived from the same vision of virtue. Can we pause for a moment and talk a little about about Rousseau's biography? Because I've got to mm. say, I didn't know. When I was first introduced to Wollstonecraft and to Rousseau as an undergraduate, I, I, I must have read a little bit of the primary text. I don't remember exactly now. But I remember being aware of Wollstonecraft's, you know, slightly scandalous sexual life. That, you know, that, that, that came part and parcel, it seems, with her reputation as a writer for, a, you know, a 19-year-old being newly introduced to her. It wasn't for years that I discovered what Rousseau got up to, specifically in relation to his children, and I, I, I and knowing that is so much more scandalous <laughs> than anything that Wollstonecraft did. Exactly, it's really true. Yeah, I mean, I guess I didn't. So right, so he abandons. I mean, he has a mistress and then abandons each of his five children to an orphanage, even though he's like this great writer of you know education and and remembered. Whereas. I guess I never finished Wollstonecraft, like, what's the scandal there? <laughs> I, 
after she writes these texts, she go when she's in France, she goes on and she meets this American entrepreneur, Gilbert Imlay, and she he 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 marries her. Well, he says they're married um, to protect her from um, being well killed <laughs> as an as a uh, English woman and as the Jacobins had taken over um, in, when she was in France, but they do have, um, well, they're held out as being married, but they're not actually civilly married, um, but they do have a child together. And so when she goes on to marry, um, uh, she has, uh, he, he abandons her for another woman. And so in some ways he represents exactly the kind of man that she had warned people against in her vindication of the rights of men, like the sort of libidinous man who, um, doesn't have the kind of delicacy of feeling uh, to not use women, basically. Um, so she um, attempts suicide at that point. And now remember, she's just had a child. She's been left <laughs> in France alone. She has very little um, means to take care of herself and her child. Um, we now know a lot about postpartum depression. I mean, who knows what was going on? I mean, I just always am kind of astonished when people uh, would say, oh, it's so scandalous that she, you know, tried to take her own life. And I sort of think, but for the grace of God, go I. Um, so I, uh, she then um, marries um, Godwin. And because she marries Godwin, um, and people thought she was married to Imlay, there's this big scandal at that point, like, oh, she was never married to Imlay. Um, and so that's part of it. And then she also had, you know, conceived the child with Godwin before they were married. It's really important. I think we look back and think this is so, well, some think this is so scandalous. And yet the marital laws at that time, she experienced very clearly um, where, you know, not only would she lose, um, you know, the right to care for her own children, um, had there been something that would have gone awry in those marriages, which she saw things like that happen in her own life, but she uh, would have lost all property rights. Um, she would have lost um, uh, all contract rights. I mean, all these through coverture, um, the common law, uh, uh, you know, um, governance of, of marriage at that point, she becomes one with her husband and she loses all those civil rights. And so for a woman who has seen sort of vicious men, <laughs> um, you know, uh, take advantage of women, it seems very clear to me and very reasonable that she would act in this way. But yes, Rousseau and a lot of other men, <laughs> we don't seem to care much about their biographies. And yet we know on a nitpick hers, um, which I think mm. tells us a lot about sort of how um, great women thinkers are are still viewed sometimes. I didn't appreciate that chronology. So she wrote Vindication of the Rights of Women before she was abandoned by Imlay. So actually, because right. I had mm -hmm. sort of assumed um, that there was bitter experience being expressed when she warns against the lack of chastity mm -hmm. in men and so on. But no, um, she no. just got terribly unlucky. Yeah, and so she has this high vision. I mean, I think she warns about it because of what she'd seen, right, and her friends and her family and her own parents, um, but she hadn't experienced it yet. And so that's why it's sort of so tragic, right, because she meets this man. She thinks he's this new man who's going to treat her um, with great delicacy and care and respect, and yet there he goes philandering. Was he also um, sort of imbued with this revolutionary spirit you know was he was he coming from the same kind of idealistic group um that she'd been drawn to he i think is running in similar circles again she's not at that point she's sort of taken um she's come to france to report on the revolution which she's started to not be um i would say partial to right so things are starting to make her very nervous um and there's uh, and the Jacobins begin to take over. And, and at that point, she um, wants no part in it. So he is actually an entrepreneur from America, <laughs> interestingly enough, um, and so is there to kind of make a buck. Um, and so I don't know, you know, I think that they um, shared sort of fellow feeling and all sorts of things like that. I don't know that um, they shared sort of intellectual um, uh, philosophy and, I, and others may know more about that, but, I, but I'm not, not, not quite sure. It's reminded me just for a moment of um, I'm writing a, a, um, an essay about Andrea Dworkin for the Free Press that I've been working on this week. Mm. And uh, it's weirdly, she has a slightly similar biography in that she ran away to Europe um, mm. and, um, and was uh, married to and uh, abused by a, um, a, a sort of fellow uh, radical 
um moving in the anarchist circles mm. as she was moving in and that and that and that marriage fell apart and then she ended up having um famous marriage to john stoltenberg and he has in her death somewhat misre- misrepresented andrew dawkin um there's funny parallels between mm. between the two of them of course although of course dawkin didn't have any children and she was there to to tell tell her side of things whereas wollstonecraft died after right and so couldn't defend herself against this biography <laughs> i think her sisters tried to um but uh, you know to no avail mm. how was a vindication of the rights of women received in her day yeah so early on i think there's a lot of interest in it um I think right away um, in Britain, scandal, you know, it's its very uh, short number of years between when she published that and when she dies and this biography, biography comes out. It reemerges um, in Britain uh, for when claims for suffrage and women's rights um, begin, but even sooner than that in the United States. So you have someone, you know, you have, they have the abolitionist movement, um, which she too uh, was, was um, uh, pretty articulate with, especially with her, with her in her um, back and forth, or not back and forth, but in her critique of Burke. Um, and so you have very early on Sarah Grimke reading um, Vindication of the Rights uh, of Women in 1820. You have Lucretia Mott reading then um, in, uh, so that by the time 1840, when she and Elizabeth Cady Stanton are talking at this, um, this abolitionist um, convention and they are not allowed in, <laughs> because they're women um, and they realize, they both sort of realize that they both read um, Wollstonecraft's work and that they need to have, um, make some claims for uh, women's rights of their own, um, especially because, you know, the, these men aren't allowing them to even speak for righteous um, causes like abolition. Um, and so that's when you start to see her, uh, her passage, I guess, across the Atlantic. However, there's an even earlier passage, um, which is that through the, the, John and Abigail Adams. So John Adams, when he's actually vice president, he reads um, Wollstonecraft's um, uh, essay on the French Revolution, and he reads it actually twice. People have found the marginella um, of of, um, his sort of reading. Uh, Abigail Adams calls herself Wollstonecraft's pupil. And so there's sort of this early reception of her thought, which to me in reading it and knowing uh, the American founders really well makes a lot of sense given um, her real, uh, her being the smaller Republican and being uh, particularly interested in um, the way in which liberty uh, and constitutional government would allow for um, uh, an equal sharing of, an equal understanding of sort of human dignity that she sought to be just basic in, in, um, in a Christian anthropology in the Imago Dei, right? And so for her, um, that you know, the need to imitate God and imitate sort of, as she says, the divine patterns um, uh, is, and and sort of inculcate virtue in children. All of that is just part and parcel of the American understanding of the experiment in ordered liberty. And so it, there's, to me, there's an obvious kinship between the founders and her thoughts. So I, I get why she's given sort of this early passage and she's read um, more in America perhaps than otherwise. And so, so did she, did she know John and, and uh, Abigail Adams personally as well through the, the congregation in London. Yeah, so we don't know whether um, they knew one another as far as I can tell. We just know that they were congregants um, in Richard's Price congregation. So I'm not sure. There may be others who know that better than me. Okay, but there's potentially quite a good chance. Yeah. At what point do you think she develops this reputation for being this crucial first feminist? as she is now remembered. And now we have people, women, we can assume leaving um, tokens on her memorial. Where do you think that, <laughs> that kind of, um, uh, that kind of reputation yeah. develops? Yeah, I mean, I think it comes in two waves, just like the first and second wave. So with the first wave, um, those early women's rights advocates, you know, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, who are kind of most remembered uh, for their work on suffrage, though um, in my book, I argue that there were others um, who probably um, had more to do with actually pushing uh, women's suffrage through. When they opened um, their newspaper, The Revolution, uh, they put her um, portrait on the wall next to Lucretia Mott's 
Um, and so, you know, they're sort of detailing of her thought. Um, she's um, uh, remembered sort of in assemblies and conventions and that that sort of thing. Um, and and you can sort of read her um, her account of rights as necessary to carry out duties in that Seneca Falls Declaration of Sentiments and Resolutions. I read her thought as very much grounded in what we would now understand as natural law, right? This view of who is it? Who are we as rational creatures? You know, where um, we are moral agents. We are um, deeply interdependent. Um, we are um, therefore relational, and we have. Um, duties to one another. And so all of that is very implicit, I would say, in, in that statement, if you if you go and read it. So then, um, you know, once you then have, you know, in some sense, feminism, as we know it, um, uh, is quiet after, um, in the United States after 1920. There's certainly, and I um, catalog all of this uh, in my book, um, there's a lot of debates among sort of, you would say, kind of communitarians versus libertarians um, in fights over when women enter the workplace, um, how should women be treated? Um, and so there's all sorts of debates early on in um, the 20th century. But then after, you know, FDR comes to power um, and you start to see a lot more um, uh, sort of good labor law um, in the United States, there's just not as much impetus for um, a great sort of women's rights movement. Um, and then you have a real change of the guard, I would say, that starts with Margaret Sanger. And um, and so there's a real shift away from a Wollstonecraft kind of seeing immiseration caused by kind of the want of chastity in men or the want of virtue in women um, to seeing kind of the female body is where um, you know, uh, there's, um, uh, you know, we need to respond to fertility and and to reproductive asymmetry through technology. And so right, you know, around that time when feminism starts to um, reboot itself with an interest in abortion and contraception, especially, um, and Simone de Beauvoir um, and others, there's now an interest in her um, sort of reputation. And she's lionized at that point as this figure who Godwin had remembered, you know, for free love and all of that. And again, not read. And so it's not until like 30 years ago when women are starting to enter the academy as political theorists, not as advocates, not as, you know, activists, but as actual political theorists who are reading her work that you start to then see her reemerge um, within sort of women's studies and then gender studies, but also in history and political science. Um, and you start to see kind of the complexity of her views um, and people start to situate her uh, differently. You know, she's no longer thought of among scholars as kind of this um, rationalist or, uh, you know, uh, kind of Lockean liberal. Um, I think people still, some scholars um, still have a, a harder time situating her religiosity, which becomes very clear when you read her, especially her early work, especially um, some really beautiful prayers that have um, been sort of shown her deep kind of Christian faith. Um, but I think even now uh, there are scholars, a new the a theologian recently wrote a really beautiful book that kind of situates her um, her understanding of the Imago Dei again, um, her Christian faith is, as um, that both men and women share as rational creatures in this, um, the image of God and therefore, you know, ought to, um, uh, be, you know, called upon to, to as moral agents to live lives of virtue and, and um, carry out their duties to others and that we need rights for that. I want to get back to this question of abortion, but in a sense, what I'm really getting back to is this issue of, of Wollstonecraft Christianity, because I think that it's the same thing, right, that we're talking about. The, the opposition to abortion is so deeply rooted in her faith. And one of the things that I I didn't know before reading you, I should say that I am um, uh, one of the epigraphs that I chose for the case against the sexual revolution, I got because you, you because of reading you and you're drawing my attention to the quote from Wollstonecraft. I can't remember exactly what it is now, but it's something about the greatest miseries that beget womankind are caused by the lack of chastity in men, right? Which is a, a source of great interest to her, right? Throughout the book. I didn't know before reading you and some other um, uh, women political theorists that um, before the second wave, pretty much, um, all feminists were pro-life. Would you say that's a fair characterization? Mm -hmm. And many of them were very, very faithful Christians. Yeah. Um, and I have since that's gone right. away and read some of those women um, 
who I'd never come across before <laughs> and was very surprised. And I actually mentioned this recently when I was um, in conversation with a, a libertarian uh, American who I won't name. Um, and I said this and she just did not believe me. She did not believe me. Like this mm-hmm. this whole period of the, the first wave and before has been so memory hold um, right. and misrepresented. And I mean, I think what's fascinating is that many of them were Quakers. So Lucretia Mott, Sarah Grimke. I mean, Sarah Grimke has the most beautiful account of Genesis. You know, she goes back to, um, you know, using the original text um, to say, you know, when, you know, God says that, um, that, you know, man will rule over uh, woman, he's not being um, prescriptive, but descriptive, you know, he's, he's describing what, what happens after the fall. And I, um, I think it's just, it's a beautiful text in which she also shares a lot of these, this view that because we are responsible to God for our lives, because we are these moral agents, um, that, um, you know, we need to have this full and robust liberal education as men do, that we shouldn't be sort of these ornaments, these, you know, sort of um, beauties to behold, or just to manipulate our men through, you know, our feminine wiles or something that we're like serious, um, that we, you know, have rational minds. Um, and uh, that that we have these responsibilities. And I think that's where um, this real focus, I think, on um, responsibility and those duties of care um, that that uh, the men and women both have was very, very pivotal in that first wave. Um, and so, you know, they're when they're um, really aghast at kind of the way in which men are kind of let off the hook for abortion. <laughs> Um, and men are, and women are blamed. Um, and one of the ways that they respond to that early on is um, through what they call voluntary motherhood. And it's this view that, look, if women are the ones who are responsible for unborn life and then for nurturing new life um, through nursing and through early, early care of children, then we should be the ones who, um, as Sarah Grimke puts it in her essay, Marriage, control all preliminaries. And by what she meant was that we shouldn't be raped <laughs> at, uh, you know, when we're um, married or otherwise. But for these women, um, you know, there's this male sexual prerogative that comes about through uh, an understanding of the common law through something called consortium, where basically women are understood as property of their husbands. And so they can kind of do with them what they will. But it also comes about through a really I think harsh reading of of scripture um, and uh, where, you know, as though men can sort of rule over women's bodies and, and take them sexually whenever they want. And so there's a real pushback against that, um, especially because of the duties of care that women owed for their, you know, owed to their children, but also because they very much value chaste love. And they talk about that. I mean, that that, that how horrible it is to enter into marriage thinking that we're going to become like, you know, two together um, and have this deep love and then I'm, you know, taken um, through when I uh, am not willing to become a mother because I have four other children or because of sickness or because of whatever, um, because I'm just not capable of it right now, um, that my husband would go in and, um, you know, presume that he could have sex with me. And so this is a big, and so there is a call for bodily autonomy, right? But it's an autonomy to sort of um, even bodily ownership, the way that sort of second wave feminists are um, apt to talk about abortion. But what they're talking about is, <laughs> about is you know, an ownership and an autonomy to um, control what I do with my body. And I'm not, you know, going to, um, because of the responsibilities that come with um, conceiving a child, um, because, of the, because of the duties of care, I owe to that child. And so that's very much a theme in those early, among those early women's rights advocates. So crucially, they, they're, they recognize the value of women being able to choose when they become mothers, but their solution is not abortion or contraception. Their solution is male restraint. Mm-hmm. And that's right. It seem, yeah. And it seems to me, and I think it seems to you, that that expectation of male restraint was to some extent abandoned at the time, uh, not consistently across the board, but in the kind of, in the mainstream of feminism, that expectation has to some extent been abandoned and we have a technological solution instead. That's right. I think it's helpful just to, I usually do all sorts of quoting, which I listen other people quote on podcasts and you're sort of like trying to follow them. But I think it's really helpful just to hear one from the Declaration of Sentiments and Resolutions 
um, just to put sort of a fine point on it. So sort of people get like, this is what they were really, one of the claims that they were really up to. They wanted to be able to speak in public. They wanted to be able to hold, you know, to, um, to be able to, you know, enter into education and the professions and all that. But here's one of their resolutions that the same amount of virtue, delicacy and refinement of behavior that is required of women in the social state should also be required of man. And the same transgression should be visited with equal severity on both man and woman. And I mean, it's very similar to here going back, and I do a lot of comparison in my book to these women and Wollstonecraft, but she says, you know, chastity, modesty, public spirit, and all the noble train of virtues on which social virtue and happiness are built should be understood and cultivated by all of mankind or, will they, or they will be cultivated to little effect. And so there's this understanding, like we're all called to cultivate honesty and courage and um, moderation and yes, chastity and modesty and all of that, both men and women. You know, there isn't kind of a set like, oh, courage and justice is for men and chastity and, and modesty is for women. No, all of us are called to all of that. Why? Because there's this idea that we're responsible to God um, as rational creatures and that that's how we will have, as Wollstonecraft says in that package, how we will become happy, how we will become free, that we're not beholden to our kind of lower appetites or our desires, even though those give life, you know, great um, kind of pleasure and goodness, but where um, we ought to be, you know, live according to the highest principle in us, which is our reason, right? And that that reason is very much open, not, it's not sort of this you know, modern kind of rationalism that's like, you know, calculating reason or logic, but it's kind of open up to all of reality. Um, and so I want to read one more where um, Wollstonecraft um, has her protagonist in, in uh, the original story say, we are all dependent on each other. So she's very cognizant in a way that those, her fellow enlightenment thinkers, um, Hobbes, Locke, etc., wanted to talk about sort of independence and autonomy, um, because maybe men are a bit able uh, to, to live that um, more than women. But she, but she says, we are all dependent on each other. And this dependence is wisely ordered by our Heavenly Father to call forth many virtues, to exercise the best affections of the human heart and fix them into habits. And so there's just always like this desire to help form that mother and fatherhood are such noble kind of occupations and callings because what mothers and fathers are doing with very, very young children, she was especially an advocate of nursing for women, um, because of those affections that um, are, are inculcated and virtues that are inculcated very in very young children that help them to live, you know, happy and free and independent lives as they grow older. In a sense, what she's asking of men is that they, is that they adopt feminine virtues rather than rejecting them so in the in the the, the yeah. nurturing of children yeah. and in chastity and all these things which are, of course are deeply rooted in christianity as well whereas you open your book by talking about the um um the pussy hats phenomenon and the kind of anti-trump protests in america which actually were as with so much i would say of um of of 20th and 21st century liberal feminism is about imitating men and not necessarily imitating masculine virtues either, but actually often imitating masculine um, excesses, masculine misbehavior, you know, being, being, right. being through right. casual sex, through being sort of crude and aggressive and whatever it might be, which is really diametrically opposed actually mm -hmm. to what Wollstonecraft is saying. Yeah. I mean, there was a way in which, and her rhetoric um, lends to this, where she talks about how women should acquire more masculine virtues. And then she kind of says, but masculine is kind of a bugabear. Like, really, you know, I don't want virtue to be sex because of this unitary, you know, um, uh, source in God. But that, but yeah, I mean, effectively, it's like what traditionally was hailed in men should be acquired by women. And what was traditionally hailed in women should be acquired in men. Why? So that we can have the fullness of being human persons, you know, who have this um, respect for one another. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that that's right. And there's a way in which, I mean, Aristotle saw this, you know, that, that it's easier for men to be, uh, or, or that, that men, not so much that it's easier, but there's a way in which because men are prone because of now we know testosterone to risk taking, um, that, you know, courage is something that they, um, potentially have sort of a more natural affinity for. Right. And, and, and I think because women, 
um, have, you know, the capacity to bear children and therefore become very vulnerable when they do so and be, can become more dependent um, on those around them and especially men, um, you know, the father of their child, that moderation, Aristotle says, is is um, something that women have more of a propensity to, right? She's going to be moderate in who she engages in sex with, if she's thinking clearly, um, because of that vulnerability that befalls her, right? So the question is whether or not um, it's important for, you know, men to take on these, this, you know, uh, important chastity and, and moderation, which, as you say, Christianity really calls men to, um, and when, whether women should be courageous and, um, and, uh, you know, have great fortitude, which I would say Christianity also called women to. I mean, some of the great, the great saints, female saints had great courage and speaking out um, for kind of righteous causes and all that. Uh, so, yeah, I think there is a way in which um, that certainly is what what um, Christianity does uh, for um, and the Christian virtues call all, all people to. Do you think it would be fair to say that um, Wollstonecraft is an early proponent of the kind of blurring of gender distinctions and actually the breaking down of gender roles, which has now become such a fundamental aspect of um feminism particularly in the academy or do you think she's doing something quite different from what we now see yeah i mean it i think that there's um a way in which she's very clear about the distinction between um you would say blurring or questioning the maybe you could even use the social construction of um how we thought about virtue um, and what was required in terms of virtue, what society thought um, kind of uh, the excellences of women and the excellence of men look like. And so I think in that way, she's trying to say, um, no, you can have a, you know, incredibly intelligent woman or an incredibly courageous woman. Um, and in the same way, she, I guess, would, you know, want to, um, want to, uh, as we've just said, um, call men to something that maybe, you know, a, uh, you know, um, uh, the, you know, Homer wasn't as <laughs> interested in, in terms of male, male role, role. Um, but I think she's very clear about biological and reproductive differences, not only reproductive differences, that again, there are mothers and there are fathers and they have different roles and that nursing especially is really kind of an important place where women can, um, can grow in, in excellence. And, um, uh, but, but also, um, that, um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess the, the maternal and the, and the paternal roles, I guess what I was going to say that it skipped my thought was the way in which he talks about physical strength and that she says, it's very clear that men have far more physical strength. And she's not, as I mentioned at the beginning, she's not an egalitarian where she just states men and women are equal. She actually says men and women have these this equal call to virtue. They're equally rational creatures. They're equally responsible to God. But whether or not, you know, men could be potentially more virtuous, we need to see whether that's the case. Maybe they are. Maybe they are potentially more virtuous because of this high, this greater physical strength, right? Um, but we don't know because we've kept real, you know, kind of rigorous education and moral formation from women. We've kept them from understanding kind of the end that they have in life, which is this um, greater development. The comments on breastfeeding were um, interesting to me because I did work as a um, graduate student on um, wet nursing, which at the time was popular in, in her era was popular among the upper classes. And um, as you related, she was quite condemnatory of um upper class preference for wet nursing and indeed upper class preference for um outsourcing the work of both motherhood and fatherhood to servants um and not only because it meant having less a less close relationship with children but also that feeling that there's something ennobling for both men and women about doing that work themselves is that right yeah that's right she actually kind of analogizes women at that time to the rich, that there's a way in which aristocratic women and kind of wealthy men um, are just sort of, you know, idle and that idleness and that focus on kind of, as I mentioned, property and honors and appearance and, um, you know, what society thought of them or all of that um, really kept them from 
doing kind of carrying out those really important duties. Again, I mean, virtue is, I mean, I, I've mentioned it so many times, but it really is the central feature. You know, she sees that all institutions, you know, marriage and parenthood and, and social institutions, political institutions ought to be designed with, you know, the development of humans virtue foremost in mind, because that will be what leads to their own personal happiness, to familial happiness and to societal happiness. So yeah, that's right. She's very much wants um, men and women because of the good that comes from them attending to each other in marriage, but then also attending to their children, the, the way in which they're developed. Um, and there's some really beautiful lines she has about in, you know, in paying attention to the, the, the development of one's child and the virtue um, and inculcating virtue in your, in your children, then you too uh, begin to see where you might grow as well. And she says it much more actually than that. But but I think she really has, um, as one who has many children myself, who've been very focused on raising children, I uh, I really um, see that in myself, you know, especially teenagers, <laughs> um, you know, help you help you grow, but so do caring for very young children. So she saw that very clearly. And before she'd even had a child herself as well, that's what's really amazing actually about, mm -hmm. about her insight into, yeah. Because I know what she means. <laughs> yeah. Um, what did she have to say on male physical strength as well as a crucial um, diff a biological difference between the sexes? Yeah. So she's very clear that it's not just reproductive differences and the ways in which, again, carrying out those distinctive duties could form a maternal and paternal character very distinctively. But um, that men have greater physical strength than women. It's very clear. And she kind of says, you know, so why do they have to, <laughs> you know, um, you know, jump on more and kind of hold down women more by not giving them the kind of education they need um, to, you know, to, to really uh, live according to their kind of noble purpose as human beings. But it's interesting because she actually says with regard to physical strength that, you know, perhaps that means that men could attain more virtue than women. And she leaves that up to a chance, you know, and, and Sarah Grimke does something similar um, where, you know, we don't know really, um, uh, you know, what women are capable of morally and intellectually because they're, they haven't, you know, at that time they weren't given kind of the intellectual and moral formation um, that they ought to be and that they were kind of held as dependents or as just sort of, you know, they ought to, as Rousseau thought, just sort of listen to their husbands or their fathers and not be sort of given um, the uh, the formation as she did in that female reader, she wanted to, you know, do for women um, and, and young and for your young girls to have that kind of independence of mind that would, she thought, help them be um, really uh, interested in carrying out those duties um, to their children, that she was confident that were they given um, this education, um, that that's what they would be focused on because they would understand what their end is as human beings um, and that they would understand how happiness would come from that. Um, I don't know that that's how it's gone, but I think part of that is because our education system really moved away from uh, forming human beings for virtue and very much took that same technological turn, um, uh, really thinking about uh, human beings as consumers and producers and not as friends and spouses and parents. And uh, that's been a real shame because a all of her vision, her vision, not just for women and for men, but just sort of for what it is to be human. I think that we've forgotten all of that, which is part of what I'm trying to do in in my book, The Rights of Women, um, is in reclaiming that lost vision, it's reclaiming, you know, what it is to be human in a really full sense, um, and what, you know, human happiness and flourish consist flourishing consists in. That's such a lovely note to end on. So um, in the extended bit of the episode, I want to talk a bit more about your biography and your intellectual and ideological journey, which is really interesting. Um, for everyone else, uh, where can people find more of your work? And also if people are interested in this, this pre 20th century feminism, you know, we've mentioned quite a few names um, in terms of um, early suffragists and so on. But do you think that there, aside from Wollstonecraft, is there maybe one or two other women that you think really, really ought to be read more than they are? Yeah, so I mean, my, I would say my first um, important suggestion is to go and find Wollstonecraft's work. If you want to start with Vindication of the Rights of Women, go for it, but certainly read original stories as well. And um, But don't read the introductions that editors have put there. <laughs> um, go and read her words themselves. Um, I think that's really important. I would also try to find, um, and it's hard to find, I'm actually working on an anthology 
of these early women thinkers, because as you say, they have been memory hold. And so it's hard because sometimes it's like I'm asking people to rely on my own scholarship and sometimes people just want to read them for themselves. So trying to find uh, Sarah Grimke's work, I think would be really, um, really advantageous for people. So um, her letters on the equality of the sexes, her essay marriage, reach out to me if you are just dying to find them and I'll, I'll point you uh, to a PDF that I have. Um, and then in terms of my work, um, so I um, uh, direct the Wilson Craft Project at the Abigail Adams Institute, where we actually have in the last six months launched a journal, um, which we say is the source, your source for sex realist feminism called Fair Disputations. Um, Louise is part of that and other great thinkers, Mary Harrington, Nina um, Power, um, Abigail Favalli, many of whom, I think all of those you've had on your podcast already. <laughs> Eventually we'll get everyone, everyone associated yeah. with their disputations. We'll come on the podcast at <laughs> yeah, some point. Yeah, it's really good. <laughs> and then you can also find my essays um, at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, uh, a Washington DC think tank, which has kind of an individual website dedicated to, to my writing. Erica, that was wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Louise.